Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 168 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Shannon Roche. Shannon is the president and CEO of Yoga Alliance. I'm sure 99.9% of you know what Yoga Alliance is. And you probably also know that they've been undergoing a lot of changes in the past several years. So Shannon has been a big part of these changes. She's been with the organization since 2017, and they announced new standards for yoga schools and yoga teachers this past summer. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to Shannon, to have them give us an update on where they are and where things are going. I asked for questions from listeners on Instagram. I saved your questions for the end, but I tried to go through as many questions as possible with her. And I'll also just be transparent and say that because I'm not a yoga teacher myself, I haven't really followed all of the ins and outs and little details and controversies and podcasts about Yoga Alliance over the years. So I really tried to educate myself in terms of what was happening and then what they're hoping to instill and change within the organization. So that's just my way of saying, I hope this conversation is of service to you. And if you have any other questions, feel free to submit them on Instagram, or you can send them to support at Enjoy the conversation with Shannon. So Shannon, thanks so much for being here. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. And I want to just dive right in. You know, I interviewed David Lipsius last mm-hmm. year for Yoga Journal. So I got to know a little bit about what was happening at Yoga Alliance. And I know there's been a lot of changes in staff. And I know there's been a lot of committees formed and focus groups and outcomes and analysis. <laughs> so this is kind of our opportunity to talk through everything and where Yoga Alliance is right now and how it is trying to serve the yoga community. I'm going to dive into sort of like the hard stuff right away. And that is to say Yoga Alliance has been really criticized in the past. And and I mean, I think still is to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And the main thing that I have heard over the years is that Yoga Alliance is simply a list, like it's simply a registry and it doesn't enforce any yoga standards so that the word on the street is always like, oh, people at Yoga Alliance at the top are making a lot of money without offering any service to yoga teachers. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys have been trying to change that. So where has that started and where are you now with trying to create more of a service with Yoga Alliance? First of all, thank you for having me and thank you for having us and even inviting the conversation. We really appreciate it. And in particular, appreciate the opportunity to speak to the question you just asked. And I'll just say, just as a, as a side note, I love your podcast. So oh, I'm so you. excited to be in this conversation. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks. To the question of sort of, you know, what does Yoga Alliance offer beyond simply the registry or the list? I think that that is an absolutely understandable and fair critique, and certainly it's one that we hear and have heard a lot of. I'll start by sort of saying how I think we got to that point, and then we'll come back to your question of what is it that we are trying to do to change it. My understanding of the sort of Yoga Alliance's history and, again, how we got to this point is it seems to me from all the work that I've done and, uh, and efforts that we've made to understand the answer to that, that 
there was a very well-intentioned effort among prior leadership to focus primarily on the question, really one of the central questions of Yoga Alliance's founding, which was, you know, are we going to try to be the arbiter of what is yoga or not? Mm. And then and now the answer to that question is no. I believe that previous leadership in an effort to sort of stay within those bounds and make that answer very clear sort of ended up in a place where the relationship that they built with it with the membership was well frankly it wasn't much of a relationship it was really transactional rather than relational mm-hmm. and i think that that from in lots of different ways is one of the points of genesis of that critique again i think it was well intentioned but i think perhaps a bit a bit of an overfocus um, or a bit of a sort of focus there on execution to the exclusion of other things mm-hmm. To your separate question, though, of, you know, what are we trying to do now? We are really trying to to flip that, right? And so rather than focus on transactional and sort of abiding by rules and guidelines explicitly and specifically, we are really focusing on a relationship with our members and be not only supporting them, but being in relationship with them and creating a community and supporting that community and being a part of a community. There are lots of specific ways that we're working to do that. The first and I think most public of which obviously was our standards review project. And there are lots of other efforts that we have in the work, some of which we've announced and many of which we haven't. And I'm excited to sort of have in process. That would be my broad characterization of kind of how we got to that point. Mm -hmm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're fairly new to the Yoga Alliance staff, right? I am. I joined, um, actually, David brought me on board, and I joined in July of 2017, so a couple years now. Okay. And what was your background before Yoga Alliance? For, oh gosh, longer than I care to admit. (laughs) I worked in nonprofits and uh, largely nonprofits with a political focus. And so the skills and experience that I hope I bring to the Yoga Alliance from that are largely focused on coalition building and stakeholder engagement and sort of understanding what people are hoping for from the institutions that they work with. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So given that you're fairly new, what was it for you when you were interviewing that you thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to this organization that clearly has some, some PR problems and some actual <laughs> problems. Like, what motivated you to take this work on and to feel like the mission was important enough that Yoga Alliance actually needs to exist? I mean, that's sort of something that people debate out there, whether or not it needs to exist at all. There were a number of things that were that attracted me to the organization in the first place, but really what was it that caught my eye and that to which I committed? A couple of different things. One was a sense, you know, even just from a an initial look at the organization, I could see pretty early on that there was this distinction between a relationship with its membership and really just a sort of transactional encounter, right? A focus on transactional encounters. And that felt to me, as somebody who has been a a yoga student for 20 plus years, that felt to me really antithetical. It didn't feel yogic, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, that seemed just on the surface like an opportunity for improvement and like a challenge that I would just personally find interesting and that I thought that my background could potentially have something to offer to bring to bear. 
The other piece that I was really excited about, I should say two pieces, really. One was thinking about using the Yoga Alliance reach and platform as an opportunity to to show yoga in all of its different forms, in all of the places where it's being practiced by all of the different people who practice it every day. I think it's fair to say that, at least in the U.S., there's a pretty stereotypical mental take on, you know, who is it that practices yoga or who is it who practices yoga. And I just, from my own experience, know that not to be true. And it felt like there was a real opportunity to kind of broaden that story. And then the other piece that I thought just really was important was for me, I'm happy to sort of go into the to detail here if you'd like, although I don't think it's the purpose of the conversation. But for me, like I think many of your listeners probably, yoga has really provided a lifeline in moments that have been particularly challenging. And I could tell from a distance that the organization for all what I now know to be well-intentioned reasons was not really living into its full potential to support the people who who help others find that practice, really support teachers. And that just, it seemed odd. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't seem like it really did the teachers justice. And so I just, it seemed like there were, you know, for a number of different reasons, lots of opportunities, and I hoped I had something to offer. So I know we're going to get into the standards review project and the outcomes of that. And I don't know, maybe this answer will relate to that or maybe not. But for the people out there who are like, okay, give Yoga Alliance my money. And now they're, you know, they've announced these new standards. Mm. But really, like, what have you done for me lately? What are the actual benefits, tangible benefits that you see yoga teachers and yoga schools can get from Yoga Alliance moving forward? Sure. I think that there are broadly three things that people tend to think of us for as far as benefits are concerned. And these will continue to be true. And I hope that we will just add to them. One, obviously, is the credential, and we can come back to that, so I won't belabor that now. The second is what we internally call our member benefits, right? So we have a a fairly extensive sort of menu of discounts and other opportunities with partners that are available on our website, available to members on our website, which we continue to add to and we continue to look to add to it in ways that think about the whole of a teacher's day and life not just necessarily the moments when they are in front of a classroom. So I do think there are pretty significant benefits there to be gained. And then the other piece that I think we're known for is our work in advocacy. And really, that's that's a really positive take on it. But often that means for us, it means sort of holding back opportunities or efforts for states and other governments to regulate yoga. All of those things will continue to be true. And all are available and present right now. And like I said, hopefully we'll just continue to add. You have already started advocating, haven't you, for indifferent... Wasn't there something in New York State that mm-hmm. Alliance helped with? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. There have been, gosh, over the years, and, and we are coming up on our 20th anniversary, actually. So over the 20 years, there, we have worked in a number of different states, including New York, Wisconsin, California, other places as well, to hold back efforts to regulate yoga instruction. And it's interesting, those efforts, and I, and this was true in New York as well, those efforts are usually coming from state boards of post-secondary education right? that are really looking to sort of put some rules around the most sort of basic way to describe it is the way that 
any post-secondary education school or provider sort of runs its business and keeps its records, which our argument has always been that's really largely simply not necessary here. (laughs) And the standards that we've put in place do that work for them. Okay. Right. So, so we're really focused on making sure that those standards are clear and strong and defensible so that if a state regulator comes knocking, we can, we can sort of show them the body of work that we've done to hopefully put them out of business, but just point them in a different direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just kind of reading between the lines for people who might not be familiar, if state regulators started to regulate yoga schools, it would potentially put a lot of schools out of business, wouldn't it? And sort of a way for the state to make money. Mm-hmm. I would completely agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure others would dispute it. But yes, I mean, I think that has been at the center of a lot of the arguments that we've made over time, which is that what states are proposing regulating, as I've described, right, is really focused in a lot of ways on sort of record keeping type stuff, which is not going toward anything that makes consumers feel or actually be more safe, which I think is the way most people sort of understand regulation to be focused, which makes a ton of sense. And in doing that, the sort of upshot and end result of that will be that yoga schools and yoga studios really will end up paying a lot of fees to state boards of regulation that won't result in added safety and will most likely result in a lot of what we know are very small businesses, mom and pop shops, you know, one, two people running these schools and studios, putting them out of business. Yeah. So this is also where it's even more important that Yoga Alliance conducted this standards review project, right? So let's get into that a little bit. So over the past 18 months, you've Yoga Alliance has conducted the standards review project. And so many questions about that. But um, <laughs> Let's just start with this. How did you involve yoga teachers and the Mm -hmm. community to help inform the new standards? Mm -hmm. So when David and I joined the organization, we sort of took a look across all of the offerings that it was providing and all of the opportunities that we had available to us to, to support teachers and schools more. And it became apparent pretty quickly that the the sort of first and foremost place that we needed to focus that attention was on updating the standards, both because there had been a lot of work done over the years to think about updates, but not a lot of that had been put into practice for various reasons. And also because, you know, that was coming through loud and clear from the community, even absent sort of a relational <laughs> or a relationship with the community. So we focused there first, and the way we decided to go about the work, we hoped was this first step toward being in relationship and being, you know, both a member of and a support to the community. So rather than assessing all of the existing standards, looking for opportunities to make changes and kind of decreeing it so, Mm -hmm. we felt that it was really important that this be a process that engaged members and frankly engaged beyond just members, right? Engage the entire yoga community so that we could make sure that what we were asking people to do was both what they thought was important and what they thought was necessary. And then we went about doing that in a variety of different ways. Started with small groups of teachers that were focused on specific topic areas that we thought would need particularly deep dives. 
And those were largely long-serving senior teachers within yoga, but we also involved in, in each of those working groups, we also involved experts from outside of yoga so we could learn from other disciplines as well. We conducted a survey, you know, recognizing that we wanted to try and reach as broadly as possible. We were really lucky in that we um, heard back from over 12,000 participants, which wow. I continue to be just so yeah. grateful for and taken aback by. And so there was a lot of good learning there. And then we, you know, we were in one-on-one conversation with teachers throughout the entire process. And as we identified additional topics that needed sort of further deep dives, we stood up additional task forces. And so, you know, opportunities sort of at the macro and the micro level throughout. I mean, I, I had to do this all the time at Yoga Journal, so I know it's kind of like a little bit of an organic process, but how did you decide on which, who to include, like which teachers to include? How did you find, <laughs> figure that out? That's a fantastic question and continued to be one that we held front and center and, and were challenged by, honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, we asked the teachers who we knew who were supportive of stronger standards. We asked sort of them as a, as, as a sort of first circle, if you will, and then worked out from there, both through the folks that they knew who were interested and the folks that they knew who had particular expertise but then also made a really intentional effort to kind of look around that corner and look past just the people we knew. It certainly wasn't a perfect <laughs> exercise in that sense. I don't know that any any one exercise ever could be, but we worked really hard to make sure that we were including, especially in these working groups where there was sort of ongoing deep engagement around specific topic areas that we knew were of concern to lots of people. We worked really hard to make sure that we were including not only representatives of the membership and people sort of whose names would be known to most practitioners, but also people who, frankly, explicitly weren't part of the membership, right, because they didn't agree with the way things had been done in the past and who who might not yet be household names. And so it was really just a a process of continuing to look for new and different voices. I remember months or maybe when I was researching David, I could, you could actually look at the lists of teachers who were involved in, in different mm-hmm. groups. Can, can people still find that online if they're really they, curious? They can. We had stood up a, a separate standalone website for the Standards Review Project that we've actually now since stopped updating because we've made the first announcement of updates. And so we're directing people back to our regular site. Having said that, that list is still available at yastandards.com. Okay. There were over 100 teachers who participated in, in one of these kind of deeper dive groups in addition to, you know, all of the one-off conversations in the survey. Yeah, yeah. Did you look to other professions to see how they create their standards? I'm thinking of psychologists. I, I just always think of that for some reason, that psychologists have a certain, you know, licensure. And I'm wondering if you looked to other professions to help inform your decisions. Mm-hmm. We did. I think that might be my favorite question ever. Um, we did. We absolutely did. So a couple of thoughts there. One, the person who is individually responsible for executing on this entire process is actually a member of the Institute for Credentialing Excellence. Um, we have worked really hard to kind of get her and by extension then her team into that community of credentialing bodies um, so that we're always abreast of changes in in just credentialing broadly, right? So certainly there was learning that she brought back from those conversations that we incorporated. We continue to look also for 
organizations that we can benchmark ourselves against and did look in this case to lots of other professions. Psychologists are a great example. We looked at, you know, doctors and dentists, and we tried to look at actors even um, mm-hmm. as an example of another profession where the person standing in the front of the room is really the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it is pretty hard to find a direct analog to Yoga Alliance on a number of different um a number of different variables, right? So in representing both teachers and schools, we know that schools often are studios as well. And so that means that we're representing both, you know, for lack of a better description, the employer and the employee yeah. is a strange position to be in. It's pretty unusual. It is also pretty hard to find an organization that has the the sort of global reach that we do that doesn't have local chapters, in those countries, or even frankly, local staff, local offices. Do you th- do you think that would help? <laughs> that that is a big question. <laughs> you guys, uh, is that a debate in within the organization? It is a debate. Yeah. And here's the reason it's a debate. I think that if we are going to represent anyone, we should be able to do it from a from a position that is genuinely supportive and accessible. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, ideally we would have staff in all of the locations where we have members so that people, you know, again, so that we're sort of building this relationship and we are actually a part of the community. On the other hand, you know, compared, and I certainly know that, that this is, we are not planning to raise dues. Let me preface it by saying that, but compared to other organizations that do have staff in multiple countries and that do kind of provide that level of service, our dues are really low. And so, you know, <laughs> there's a there's a real balancing act there and not an easy answer. Uh-huh. Let's talk about what the standards were that were announced this past standard uh, mm-hmm. this past summer. But I'd also like to and I don't know which order to do this. I'd also like for you to to help clarify, you know, moving forward if Yoga Alliance will be a registry or a mm-hmm. certifying body. <laughs> I know it's not a really, it's not an accrediting body, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's not, because, because yeah. of what you said earlier, which is that you're not defining yoga. So you're not having people come in or, you know, going out to the the community and and taking tests for you to accredit people to be well, teachers. I, I would love to know how you see it moving forward. And I'll parse the language a little bit because it is, for me, even two years in, confusing. <laughs> so I imagine I'm not alone in that. There are varying different kinds of credentials that organizations can offer, of which a registry is one form. So we've always been a credentialing body, mm-hmm. right? People know us for the registry. And I think that there's a sense, even you know, among our own team, there's a sense that those are two different things. And I just want to sort of clarify that, no, they're the, a registry is a credential. It's just a particular kind of credential. So okay. we will continue to be a credentialing body in that sense. I don't imagine in the near future that we will venture <laughs> too far into the space of, you know, ourselves creating exams, creating and administering exams. Or, you know, as I sort of mentioned before, trying to do things that will feel like defining yoga. Right. And so I don't imagine that we will sort of progress too far up that continuum of credentials. Honestly, there's so many and they're so specific that I I couldn't rattle them off if I wanted to. Yeah. They they sort of go up from registry, if you will. 
having said that, I do think that, you know, we, we want to provide a service that our members find useful and that is hopefully a differentiator based on which people can feel good about their investment in our organization and hopefully find jobs. Mm. And so I do think, you know, we will continue to get more clear for ourselves and for the public about what the credential stands for, which is why a lot of the changes that you, you've seen, and, and I hope that this comes through, are really focused on making sure that we all, and really, frankly, the public is included in that we all, understand that the credential is a marker of high quality, safe, accessible, and equitable yoga teaching. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, I think we'll continue to move into those spaces, but I don't think that we will do that in a way that I hope has anybody feeling like we're trying to tell them what to teach. Right, right, right. That's it's a really fine line to walk. It's a hard one. <laughs> but I think you're sort of getting to just something popped into my head, which is a different way of saying things, which is that I think what people are so frustrated by is that they feel like perhaps the credential is not yet meaningful, mm-hmm. right? Like it's like they're paying their dues and they're hoping that having the you know RYT behind their name means something, but because the standards haven't really been actively enforced mm-hmm. by Yoga Alliance, it doesn't feel meaningful. So let's get into how you feel like you're going to make it meaningful. We can start with the the major takeaways from the standards review project. Sure. Well, I think you just hit on one of them, and I think it's a really important one. You know, a lot of the changes that we have made to our standards as they're published, but frankly, also just our internal processes, which are I think are equally, and although in some cases perhaps more important, are around this question of accountability and actually sort of ensuring that the credential means the thing that we say it means, right? On the processing questions, which I realize sounds weedy, but I, I actually find it quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> internally, I'll start with how we're holding ourselves accountable first. Internally, we've put in place or we're going to put in place a much more rigorous application in the first place, right? So even just to to apply for the credential, we're going to be asking folks to submit more comprehensive information so that we can take a more comprehensive look at what is being shared with us. Previously, you know, we had asked people to sort of send in what I think was relatively cursory information. Uh, People met it, met those requirements, but I think a credential merits and deserves a sort of deeper look and deeper dive than that. So we're going to be asking folks for more in-depth information, which just as a side note, we are working right now to put really strict privacy protections in place around any information that's shared with us, because I know that is a significant point of concern for lots of folks, myself included. And when we get that information, we're putting in place a stronger and deeper team and process so that we can look at that in a more full way. So up until this point, each application has been reviewed by one person. And again, the information in it wasn't particularly deep. Going forward, we will we will have you know all of that additional information being looked at by a panel of three people, um, peer review, so that there's different perspectives. You know, people can sort of look for different things. We've got backup in case someone's having a bad day and all that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. So our own process will be stronger and better. In addition, we're going to ask for the first time, and I, I, I'm still sort of hearing back from folks as to how they how they're thinking about this, although largely supportive. 
we're going to be asking people to recredential every three years. So up until now, the process has been apply for your credential. Once you've received your credential, you are a member and you are a member forevermore. Mm-hmm. And there's actually real value to that for lots of reasons, but it doesn't it doesn't go to this question of actually you know allowing us to build a relationship with our members. It puts us in a position of being transactional once a year when you get your email from us and that says please renew. And it doesn't sort of give us an opportunity to check back in with people as they're teaching and as their curricula evolve over time. Hmm. So we need to do the work of making sure that, you know, three years, however many years down the pike, that what folks said they were teaching when they applied for the credential still, even if it doesn't look exactly the same, is still, in fact, something that meets our credentialing standards. So that's new. And we also have put in place a shared ethical commitment, again, sort of reflecting real support that we had seen from the community in the work that we did, largely the survey. We will have a new scope of practice. We will have an updated code of conduct. And we will also ask members to sign on to a commitment to equity in yoga so that we can know and we can be confident that if someone holds our credential, that they are at least aware of many of the different ways in which someone can feel like yoga isn't quote unquote for them, Hmm. right? In addition, still on this accountability front, we're asking schools themselves to conduct assessments before they graduate anyone. We are not, and this is something we debated for a very long time, we are not conducting those assessments ourselves. (laughs) We're not mandating what the assessment needs to do or say but we are asking all of our schools to take a moment to say, you know, have has the person sitting in front of me really, do I think that they have learned the material that I've shared with them? We're doing that as much for the accountability structure itself as also for the school to give schools an opportunity to sort of have that conversation with their students. Because we heard from a lot of school owners that they were feeling a lot of pressure to graduate everybody because everybody had paid and shown up. Right. Uh, That they didn't want to be in that position. And so, you know, we're hoping that with this assessment, not only can we know (laughs) that the people coming to us as RYT applicants have met those standards according to their teachers, but also that the teachers have a sort of built in way to have those conversations with their students. You're saying basically ahead of graduating, quote unquote, everyone, they could talk about the fact that at the end of this training, there will be an assessment and it will be dependent on your performance. Okay. That is still hard for teachers to, to enforce, but I mean, the, the Iyengar system has always had their own system for different levels of teachers. So that's something that people could look to as an example. Absolutely. And that's, you know, to your earlier question, that's, we, we also saw this idea in a lot of other professions as well. Okay. Uh, I hadn't thought about fitness before, but they have a few important credentials that you see behind people's names. Mm-hmm. And depending on the particular kind of fitness, many of those credentials similarly include this, some kind of assessment. You know, And I think they vary depending on the credentialing body, whether it's the credentialing body providing that assessment or administering it or the, the teacher or the school. But we felt given the nature of the importance of teachers and schools in in our community that we make sure that that engagement and that assessment really live with the teacher, right? Not with us. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's reflective too of what we heard from the community. All of that, frankly, is sort of the back end Uh of 
changes that we've made to the standards. The more commonly seen and known parts are the changes to the standards themselves, which I would largely put into sort of two big buckets. One is that we've eliminated what we used to call non-contact hours. And the idea here was that we heard from a lot of folks, two things. One, there are a lot of good schools doing good work out there. And so, you know, let's not penalize them unintentionally. Two, we also know that there are some schools out there that are using this idea of non-contact hours to sort of, you know, blur the lines a little bit. And so we felt like it was really important to get clear for ourselves since the nomenclature is around numbers of hours, and that's debatable, but that's a separate conversation, that if we say that this credential represents 200 hours of training, that it in fact represents 200 hours of training mm-hmm. and that we want to be true. And another, the second big bucket of changes that we made really goes to that point, um, which was a shift in the way we're thinking about the curriculum. Previously, we had had five sort of broad general categories of, of instruction that we wanted to make sure everybody hit. We've shifted that to four, essentially sort of core curriculum categories within which we've defined 12 competencies. And it's those competencies that will ask the schools to sort of build their assessments around. Okay. Uh, So, and there was a lot of debate too around this question of sort of hours versus competencies. I think there's much to be said in support of both of them. Mm, Right. (laughs) Um, And we really landed in a place where we felt like one, it's critically important that we get to the place where the things means what we say it means before we start changing what we say it is. And two, that that not be a focus to the exclusion of making sure that folks have sort of met learning competencies too. I want to go back for just a moment. You mentioned that you're introducing the code of conduct, the scope of Mm -hmm. practice, and this idea of equity in yoga. And so, and this was for an individual yoga teacher, right? To become a registered yoga alliance teacher. Are you going to have trainings around these ideas or like equity in yoga seems like it would require more than just signing on the dotted line? Yes. If it were that simple, I would be in a very different profession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, happily, because it's a really exciting space. Yes. And we are in the process right now of developing, working with experts in the field, um, both from within yoga and outside of yoga working with experts in the field of equity in general. We're in the process of developing a course that we will ask all RYTs to take online and we will provide it free of charge and we will count it for the first 10 hours of somebody's um, continuing education requirements. I'm not even going to sort of name the course yet, right? Because we haven't sort of finished the development of it. But the idea of it is is sort of getting back to what I mentioned before, that that we will be confident that anybody holding our credential has had an opportunity to sort of sit with and visit the many ways in which someone can be made to feel excluded from a yoga space. That is in no way to say that, one, we will solve that problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think anybody saying that they could do that in, you know, the equivalent of 10 continuing education hours, we should think real carefully about their whether they're sort of telling the truth. And two, you know, these are these are not easy questions and they are not going to be solved in their entirety or large, really even in, in part in one course at one time from one organization. But I do think it is fair 
to ask everybody to sort of sit with that idea for some time, you know, a few hours, and think about the ways in which that presents that aren't necessarily always obvious, right? You know, we've learned a lot, for example, from our colleagues at Accessible Yoga about how studios and schools can make people feel like they can't practice there without intending to at all. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to require that, you know, schools or studios or teachers teach in a specific way or have specific props or whatever the case might be. But we will ask people to sort of learn some new things, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is sort of the best we can hope for. And and I think the fair thing to do. Mm -hmm. So raising awareness. So just from what you were saying with the standards and that the assessment is still contingent on the teacher trainer. I mean, I think the the million dollar question for everyone is how are you going to enforce the standards and mm. and how are you going to make sure that the curriculum standards are met and how are you going to make sure that the classroom hours are met? And it sounds also like it puts a lot more responsibility on the schools, on the teacher trainers. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you see that all shaking out? Mm. That's a great question. Before I sort of get into the school's responsibility, I do want to be clear that we recognize that we have a significant responsibility here too. So I certainly don't want to give the impression that we're trying to put all the responsibility on the schools. That's not the case at all. I think a lot of the the ways in which we will hold people accountable, particularly in kind of the early days of these new standards, will be through some of those processes that I mentioned a minute ago, especially around this idea of recredentialing, you know, and I should say also around the the idea of sort of getting clearer on what the competencies are that we're hoping people will take from teacher trainings. And also that we ourselves have a chance to actually take a deeper look at the information that's being shared with us. You know, I think a lot of the processes that we're building are that those ways that we plan to make sure that the credential meets the standards or, or the people holding the credential meet the standards, I should say. And we've sort of built into that multiple opportunities to kind of check back in, right? Going forward, you know, I hope that we'll be able to rely a little more heavily on the voluntary community that we're a part of, right? Certainly, if people see violations of standards that they have concerns about, we have a grievance team, we have an accountability team that those can be reported to. And every time someone reports something along those lines, a standards violation or, or other concern, we look into it. If it merits it, we investigate it. Um, there are times when we bring in a third-party investigator if necessary. So certainly, if anyone is seeing concerns in their local communities, please let us know for us to go into all of these locations and do things like audits or sort of, you know, random mystery shopper kind of things would, again, it would require a much more significant sort of dues level than we have any interest <laughs> in seeking. Hmm. But if we receive reports of concerns, we absolutely look into them and have built the team to do that. There's a little bit of a give and take. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned that now there's a panel of three people reviewing applications to become a registered yoga teacher. Have you increased the number of people looking at school curriculums and school applications? We are doing that right now. So if you know people who are strong candidates, please let me know. We are building that team right now. So the those standards and those new processes go into effect in February of um, next year, February 2020. And we're, we're putting that team in place now to be able to take that deeper dive, you know, and not just pile 
tons more work onto the people we have already. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it is a big undertaking to do what you're trying to do. It's a huge undertaking. And it seems like in order to do it well, it needs to be really staffed properly. It need, you need to have the, the, the manpower behind it. Even if you, like you said, even if you're not going into every studio, if it really is going to be a relationship and not just an occasional email from Yoga Alliance, yeah, it would seem like you'd need to staff up a little bit. Indeed. And sort of going back to where we started, one of the structures that prior leadership had put in place that we've sort of inherited was a technology system that was built, right, to sort of do a lot of that work. Again, all well-intentioned. And I think there are lots of organizations that we could probably unearth that have sort of made similar efforts over the last five or 10 years. But our staff, because of that, our staff for a very long time was really heavy on people who can sort of maintain that technology system, you know, and so we're not actually, we're also in the process of updating our website and the backend technology. So that's not exactly going away. Although at some point, maybe we can ease up on that once we've, once we've updated it, but we are sort of shifting the focus of the great majority of our team's work from, you know, maintaining the technology to really looking closely at the standards and the information and the curricula that are coming to us. I don't anticipate that there will be a huge growth in he- overall headcount, right? We're not going to go from a team of 20 to a team of 300 uh-huh. because we're just shifting the focus pretty significantly. We will have to add some folks, but I think that that is totally appropriate. Um, and hope, you know, I, I would hope people would want to see that if we're moving in that direction. <laughs> right, right, right. You mentioned a couple times that the dues are not very high. So it, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that I get emails forwarded to me and see people on social media talking about how, you know, there are thousands of registered yoga teachers, there are thousands of registered yoga schools. So, and so Yoga Alliance is making millions of dollars. So what I'm hearing from you is that there's just a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people aren't aware of. So can you talk about how, what the budget looks like? Like what, how are things allocated? I'm happy to do that. I would also just point folks for more specific and frankly, sort of to the dollar accurate information than I can offer in the moment to our website. So our financials, we've posted our financials every year for, I think since 2011 was when that started. And so there is detailed information about our financials, um, including our 990s that we submit to the IRS, our tax forms and our audited um, statements as well. So you can find all that there. Having said that, I should start by clarifying. So when I say that I think, relatively speaking, the the dues are not that high, there's sort of two points that I think are particularly relevant. One, I mean that in comparison to other professional credentialing organizations. I do not mean that in relative to what a yoga teacher takes home for his or her work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I want to just recognize that. And also just note that I'm well aware of the concerns (laughs) that that last part that I mentioned offer, right? That how much people are able to take home for their work and to be recognized monetarily for their work. And that's actually a space that we're hoping to move into as well in the future. Two, how's the budget allocated? I think that really does go to this set of questions around just what it takes to sort of to run that operation. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely reasonable and fair and I think appropriate even for folks to sort of debate whether 
we tried the right things, <laughs> right? You know, did, did it work to sort of invest our resources in a technology system rather than a team of humans? I, I think the answer to that question is sort of self-evident at this point, but it costs money, right? It costs a lot of money. <laughs> I, I completely understand the criticism and, and, and I'm really, really incredibly sensitive to it. I also just, you know, continue to sort of be dumbfounded by how expensive some of those kinds of things are. Our budget tends to be allocated in a couple of different major directions. One is application review and membership. In the past, that has had a heavy technology and you know component to it. Going forward, it'll be much more of a human interaction relational component. The second really is around to the extent that we have built to date kind of accountability systems. That has been a place where there has been a, a reasonably significant investment made, right? It, every time we have to run an investigation, that is time intensive and expensive. Lawyers are not cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the other big bucket that, to your point, you know, if you're not in one of these states, probably is pretty not visible, is our advocacy and sort of, po- you know, anti-regulation efforts. Those are, every time something comes up in one state, let alone multiple it's incredibly expensive. It's, you know, upwards of tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the state and the the extent of the work that needs to be done. And so, you know, and, and that can, those can come up almost without warning. And frankly, if we want them to come up with warning, <laughs> right, that's additional investment that we need to make and build in the state on an ongoing basis. You know, all of that is sort of the, the what I think of as kind of the substance, right? And then there's the operations and the sort of basic human resources, finance, just running a shop mm-hmm. uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so those are sort of the big places. Right. Actually, a, a question is to the people who are writing these emails saying like, oh, it's still everyone at the top is just making a lot of money and not providing service. Have you reached out to those people to try to, to, try to create a relationship with them? Mm-hmm. We reach out in a number of different ways. For folks that tend to sort of have broader reach and bigger platforms, we, in almost every instance, we've tried to connect with them directly. Some have been really helpful and really supportive and really willing to sort of brainstorm with us and help us think about ways we could do our work better and differently. There have been some who haven't wanted to engage at all, Mm -hmm. and that's their prerogative, um, but it makes it hard to speak to their concerns. And then we do that on an ongoing basis at all different levels. We we follow up with folks who post on our Facebook page. We have a member services team who who you know all day every day answers phone calls and emails from members reaching out, many of which have concerns and criticisms that are similar to this. So absolutely, yeah, girl, I do not envy you. <laughs> Your position this is a big job. This is a big job. Thank you. I have to say, I'm so fortunate to be able to do it, though. It's such an extraordinary community of people to be able to work in support every day of people who are trying at the end of the day to serve is a real gift. Mm-hmm. So that's a good way. That's like, easy. Yeah, but that's a good touchstone to come back to yeah. for sure. I want to ask you one more question and then I want to just dive into some questions that came in from listeners. So, one thing that I'm really interested in is the the sexual misconduct policy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the past, we just didn't have one in the yoga community. <laughs> and right. there was there just wasn't a way for people to feel like 
it's just such a vulnerable environment, right? It's just mm-hmm. such a difficult thing. And yet we know that misconduct and abuse is rampant in all spiritual communities. Like it's just, right. I mean, it, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So mm-hmm. what is in place now and what could someone do if they were sexually harassed or assaulted by a teacher? And what can a leader of a school do to let people know how to educate the student body that they have some protection? Mm. I love those questions. Thank you for asking them. Before I sort of dive into the specifics, I think you're spot on that this is a problem that is shared in every spiritual community I have seen (laughs) and, and encountered. And frankly, even more broadly than that, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you're hard-pressed to find any community, in particular any professional community, that isn't grappling with these issues too. So I certainly don't want people to walk away thinking that this is unique to us. Right. Or that, you know, that there's something sort of inherent about yoga and yoga teaching that sort of creates these conditions. That said, you're also exactly right that people are in incredibly vulnerable positions when they're in classes or when they're working with teachers. We know that, for example, from from universities, right? We've seen all kinds of (laughs) situations that I won't repeat dealing with professors and students. And so this is not unique to us. It's a power dynamic. It's a, you know, it's a power dynamic and it can, clearly it's happening in a lot of places. Yeah. It is. Yep, exactly. Specifically, what can people do when they either witness or experience something, first of all, let me just say, you know, our position, I think, I hope at this point is clear. We believe that every single person has the right to practice yoga free from abuse, harassment, and manipulation. And we will continue to sort of build our own structures to shore up an environment where that's the case. So far, we have, to your point, created a sexual harassment policy. Um, one, we did not have one prior to now a year and a half ago. And we have trained our accountability team extensively to be able to field those reports when mm-hmm. they come in. Okay. Um, so first of all, we built an accountability team. We didn't have one um, okay. for, for much before that. And we have made sure that they they themselves have specific experience and training in issues of sexual misconduct. We've also partnered with RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, just not only for training for those folks and the rest of our team, but also to just inform our work more broadly. So that's kind of the the, the initial structure that we've put in place is that. And, and specifically, if someone has experienced or witnessed this kind of abuse, then what I would say is... First and foremost, please, if you feel safe to do so, um, please report it to your local legal authorities, You know whether that's police or courts or whatever the case might be. We are not that, and we are not a substitute for that, and we're clear on kind of the limits of our abilities. And so we would encourage people to make sure that, that the local authorities, if they feel safe with them, have that information so that they can act on it as well. Second we would absolutely direct people to support resources also, right? We've partnered with RAIN. There are many, many others. RAIN themselves has uh, information about locally available resources on their website, and they are accessible via our website. <laughs> and so certainly would would just first ask people to make sure that they are safe and supported and that they've pursued whatever legal recourse they feel they need that they're able to do. With regard to what we would ask people to do to report into us, please call our member services team, email our grievance department, which is grievance at yogaalliance.org. 
any sort of attempt to reach out to Yoga Alliance will make its way to that grievance slash accountability team who will then sort of investigate as necessary. That could mean, depending on kind of the nature of the specific instance, that they themselves do the investigation. It could mean that we reach out and hire a third-party attorney mm-hmm. uh, who conducts a, a sort of separate arms reach investigation. And we can and will and have take appropriate action up to and including revoking people's credentials. Okay. Okay. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's that's progress. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, thank you. It feels like what people deserve. And it feels like, I hope, a first step among many. You also asked what can, can schools and teachers do to make sure that their students are aware. This is another space that I think we're moving into, hopefully in the next, if not couple of months, then certainly after the new year at the latest. We are ourselves looking to create resources for the sort of, the word that came to mind was sort of administrative entities, right? In this case, schools, teachers, studios, businesses who want to protect their students. Mm -hmm. So things that folks in those positions can do include making things like harassment policies, first of all, exist. Yeah. (laughs) Second of all, really clear, not only to their employees and their 1099 contractors, but also to their students, right? So if you walk into a yoga space, that it not be incumbent upon the teacher to tell the students what is appropriate and what to do if they have concerns, but that the the school or the space has done so ahead of time for them. Hmm. So there's lots of things like that that anyone can put in place, anyone, any business can put in place. And we're working to build out a set of tools to for people to use as templates. Certainly okay. they wouldn't be only resources like that, but hopefully it's just a place where people can go and, and pull them if it's helpful. That seems like a good idea because I, I feel like yoga studio owners are like in some ways they're not sure where to begin. I think that that's true. I certainly have heard it over and over and over again as we've talked to people about these concerns. And, you know, just in, you know, in my own life, I know that this is one of those topics where because people don't know what to do or where to go, they feel like the best and most responsible thing that they can do in the absence of that knowing is just not, you know, to raise it. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I because it's a scary thing. Yeah. We all continue to not raise it, then it, it sort of doesn't get spoken about and doesn't get dealt with. And right. so what we're hoping to do is just use, you know, sort of take that confusion and not responsibility, but we're hoping to sort of put tools out into the community so that there is something to talk about, right? right. So that there is a kind of shared sense of what is doable and what's possible. Right. Okay. Okay, let's get into some listener questions. And I've gotten this question a few different ways, so this seems to be an important one. And the question is a question about the new standards for lead teachers and teacher training. And my understanding is that if you're going to be a lead teacher for a teacher training, you need to have at least 500 hours now. And I think it used to be 200 hours, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so it says, what about teachers who've been teaching for over 25 years, yoga teachers who were teaching before there was a yoga alliance and were grandfathered and now have thousands of hours of teaching experience and training, but not a 500 hour certificate. Mm -hmm. What would a teacher like that do? 
first and foremost, let me say we are working on and in fact, just spent last weekend working through with our board specific answers to that. And so I'll, I'll circle back to that in just a second. But before I sort of go into the specifics, I, I want to give some context here. We made this specific change to the standards because it was of all of the things that we asked about, probed around, you know, sort of poked holes in <laughs> through the standards review process. This was the singular thing that the whole community stood behind as the thing that was most important for us to do was to make sure that lead teachers are leading trainings mm-hmm. from a place of depth and breadth of experience. Now, that's not to say that they're leading trainings necessarily from a place of, you know, one credential versus another, right? But that if we were to do one thing and one thing only, the best and most important thing we could do is really make sure that the people running trainings have a lot of perspective and a lot of knowledge and a lot of background to share. Mm-hmm. So that was the the genesis of the change. And we've we have heard a tremendous amount of support for it, frankly, more than I'd expected even with that sort of knowledge that fed into the decision to make the change. That said, we're acutely aware of the fact that ERYT 500 does not necessarily mean breadth and depth of experience, right? In some cases, it can mean many hours. I think in most cases, we've seen over and over and over again that the folks who've pursued that level of training and credentialing and commitment to their craft are incredible, (laughs) really just incredible teachers. But there are plenty of incredible teachers who have pursued other paths to get there. We are in the process right now working with our board of figuring out exactly how to sort of identify those teachers so that we're not unintentionally sort of penalizing people who are great lead teachers and lead trainers, but who, you know, didn't pursue this set of letters and numbers after their name because up until a couple of months ago, there wasn't actually an incentive to do so. Mm -hmm. So we'll have specifics in the next couple of weeks, but hopefully that gives you a sense of kind of how we're thinking about it. You know, there are a couple of different avenues of folks, there are a couple of different groups of folks who've raised these similar concerns. One is the people who, um, you know, who have literally 25 years of experience leading teacher trainings. Another, for example, is people who really want to pursue that additional sort of up-leveled credential, but for one reason or another have barriers to access to do so, whether it's financial or geographical or time or all of the above. And there are a couple of others as well. So we are, we're, we're trying to address each one of those in turn and create pathways that will allow the people who are, who we all know are exceedingly well, incredibly qualified Mm -hmm. uh, to share with, with their students. Okay. So there'll be some announcements forthcoming for those people. Okay, great. In the standards review project, was there some debate about changing the number of hours, you know, for, so like, let's say the 200 is sort of the intro Mm -hmm. yoga teacher hours for now, and then 500 is more advanced. Did you go through debating whether or not to change that? We did. We did. We did. And we I knew the answer to that. I mean, I, you had to have, right? Because it is sort of another one of those questions that's constantly brought up. We did. And, you know, that where we landed on the answer to that for now, maybe not in perpetuity, 
But for now, we really felt strongly, and, and this is really, again, a reflection of what we heard from the community, that before we made any major changes to the sort of common shared credentialing vernacular, <laughs> that we first make sure that it is what it's intended to be. And so we focused first on this sort of this idea of up-leveling and of cementing 200 hours really being a defined and identified 200. And then we'll do the same with the 300 and 500 in the year ahead. So meaning no, no non-contact hours helps with that, you feel Correct. like. And, and also the lead teacher for a 200-hour training needs to teach a higher percentage of the training, I think, than they formerly did. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. And, you know, there may come a point in the relatively distant future where we look at that again. When it, If it feels like that's what the community needs and if it feels like that is what would help further advance the profession of yoga teaching, you know, we don't want to sort of stay stuck in one place just because we're stuck there. We also wanted to provide members with the value that they deserve and also not do something that would completely sort of destabilize the industry or any one individual's livelihood, (laughs) frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, Right, that's true. Without first trying to stabilize it. Right, okay. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine the reaction from the community if it was like, your 200-hour credentials are no longer valid. (laughs) Like, oh my God, (laughs) what are you talking about? Understood, right? Yeah. We also, though, we did one thing, and, you know, you'll hear more more about this from us in sort of the months ahead, but we did in the announcement that we made in June about the sort of first tranche of of up leveling we did clarify what the credentials are meant to be sort of used for right so we've started referring to the 200 ourselves as a foundational level credential in order to indicate both to the public but also just to each other mm-hmm. right that that was never meant to be the end all and be all right. <laughs> That wasn't the intention when the organization was founded 20 years ago. It's not the intention now. Now, people are, you know, independent and free, hopefully. So we certainly can't mandate that they sort of keep going, right? But our hope and our intention is that the 200 is a foundational level and that, you know, people's continuing education, both to meet our requirements and also of their own professional development, will allow them to continue to build and grow on top of that. Right. Separately, then we've started referring to the 500 as the professional level credential, right? Okay. So there's, you know, we're starting to to ourselves think about a little bit of a differentiation in what these are meant to provide for the people receiving them. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Someone asked, there are currently no prerequisites for admission into a yoga teacher training. Are you going to institute prerequisites for admission to take a teacher training? I love this question. <laughs> Again, sort of long and and deeply debated internally. You know, for now, we landed on no. Largely because, you know, again, at least in the U.S., we're not in the business of telling people how to run their businesses, right? And we know that so many school owners and teachers really are one person, two person, small businesses. Really, we looked really hard at that question. And, you know, if it were up to me personally, we might've gone in a slightly different direction. But at the end of the day, we really felt like that would be our reaching too far into the space of trying to define mm-hmm. how someone teaches 
and at the same time would be reaching too far into the space of potentially destabilizing people's livelihoods. I also think, I mean, from my perspective, there are a lot of people who do a 200-hour training simply because they want a deeper immersion into yoga. I mean, when you go to class every week, you're not debating the yamas and yamas, and you're not reading the Gita, and you're not doing all these things that you get to do when you do 200 hours. So I just feel like it sort of, yeah, it's, I, I think that that's where it would make the assessment really important. Like mm-hmm. if you were a person who went and did a teacher training, a 200 hour training, and you went into it thinking, I don't know if I really want to teach, but I'm mm-hmm. going to just do this training. Then at the end of the training, you could decide I'm going to opt out of the assessment because I don't want to teach, you know, exactly. or I'm going to do the assessment. And I, you know, so I need to sort of step up, even though I maybe haven't done a lot of yoga previous to this. Exactly. A hundred percent. And, and I should also note, you know, we, in the course of engaging with members, we heard from so many people and so many school owners who do have prerequisites and they to almost to a person felt like it really strengthened the community that they were able to create within their teacher training program. Right. But that's, we, at the end of the day, we really sort of came down on the, in the place of, you know, that is for that teacher and that business to decide because Mm -hmm. we don't have all the factors in those cases. Right. Okay. Okay. Last question from the Yoga Land community. I'm trying to figure out why Yoga Alliance has banned the use of such words as therapeutic and therapy, even for those of us who have the education and earned the designation of yoga therapist. Do they disagree with the application of yogic techniques to bring about healing? I feel like they're forcing me to pick between Yoga Alliance and IAYT because IAYT is the Association of Yoga Therapists because Mm -hmm. they are not compatible. We hear this question a lot. (laughs) And in particular, I liked the way you phrased it. I think you said, um, do we disagree with the application of yogic techniques to bring about healing? Let me just start by saying absolutely not. I mean, I think we know that yoga is a holistic system of wellness, right? And that in, that is intended to include, in some cases, some kinds of individual support, right, as needed. I think two things are true of Yoga Alliance's sort of current relationship with yoga therapy in general. One is that our credential is not designed to credential teachers of yoga therapy. That, as you pointed out, right, is what is what IAYT does. And so we don't feel like we're the people who should be saying whether one is appropriately trained in that space. And then two, and I think this is equally, if not more important, I think as well-intentioned as the policy and structures that were put in place a few years back were, the communication of those and engagement with the community and particularly the yoga therapy community or lack of engagement was just not acceptable, you know, and not the way we would want to do business going forward. I hope we'll have seen us change the way that we go about making those kinds of decisions. You know, I hope that the standard review project was an example of of how we're going to show up differently going forward um, and a first example of that. And we still aren't in the business of providing credentialing for yoga therapists. We are and have been for almost as long as I've been here trying to figure out exactly what tweaks and sort of, you know, adjustments we can make to that policy so that we're not unintentionally creating this divide. Yeah. 
We haven't done it yet because, you know, we really, we wanted to make sure that we got this foundation mm-hmm. uh, solid and, and we'll turn to that in the near future. Yeah. I mean, it seems actually quite responsible to me to, to, because like you said, it's a whole other level of training and it's kind of a different application of yoga most of the time. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. I think the folks at IAYT would, would wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Well, that's all I've got, Shannon. Thanks so much for yeah. coming on Yoga Land and talking to us about where you are. Thank, thank you for having us. I'm so grateful for the invitation and for the opportunity to, you know, to communicate with your listenership, but also just to chat with you. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to just continuing to see how it evolves. I feel like you and David, I mean, I know David's not at the organization anymore, but you took on a mountain, a mountain of work. And I think you've done a lot. And I appreciate your openness. I mean, I think there's obviously always going to be a lot more to do, but I see good forward movement. Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy that you're seeing that and really grateful um, that that's your perspective and, and for your sharing it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Thank you. You too. Thanks as always for listening. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com. And thank you also for your reviews. I finally signed up for this service that sends me the international reviews every month. And that is really exciting because I can see who's listening abroad. And I love that. It's just such, I don't know, as someone who's been in publishing and media for so long, it's such a gift to be able to know who's out there and to hear from you and be in touch with you even though you're so far away. And if you enjoy the podcast and you haven't left a five-star rating or review, this is my little nudge to have you do so. I really appreciate it. And it does help the podcast. All right. Enjoy your week. We will be in Maui by the time this is being broadcast. So we will be enjoying our week. And until next week, enjoy your practice.